Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show following the very first race of 2021. How happy are we that we have actual racing to talk about for the first time in what feels like 19 years? Uh, I think that's when the last race was. It's been forever. Thank you, as always, to you for sending in so many great questions. At last count, we were just a tick under 5,000 words worth of questions. Oh, boy. And it takes about an hour to get through each thousand, so we're not going to get to all of them, unfortunately. Probably going to go. We'll see how long I go today. I think we're going to have to do a part two for sure to try and pay service and, and respect to as many as we can. So going to try a couple things that are a little bit different format-wise. I mean, it's our show, right? Kind of play with it, try some new things, see if they work, see if they don't. Uh, nothing vastly different, but did have a delightful phone call last evening. That would be Sunday evening with Alex Pillow, winner of round one. I don't know how long that call was, eight, ten minutes, maybe 12. I'm not totally sure, but uh, I figure you just might like that. Like to hear him. He's just, yeah, boy, that kid. So going to put that in here as soon as I'm done giving you a couple bits of info. Then once we're done with Alex's short little interview, we'll get into your listener Q&A. And then maybe later in the show, uh, who knows, maybe in part two, have probably six minutes, seven, eight minutes, whatever it is, with Romain Groschon after his first race. So spoke with those two guys yesterday and just some fun stuff. Doesn't really fit into anything else. Not frankly having a lot of extra time to do a bunch of additional podcast posts this week. So instead of throwing those into some sort of standalone deal, just going to plug them in here. So there's that. I want to say thank you as always to you, to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com for supporting everything we do here. Last little note or two or whatever. Uh, had a bit of a, a sad realization last week that despite all the hopes and dreams and wishes and desires for me to attend the Indy 500, and having gone as far as booking flights, hotel, and rental car to head out and cover practice and qualifying, come back home, and then return for the race, and also go to the memorabilia show, uh, just realized that we're not there yet. Had hoped we would be. That's why many of these things were booked uh, a few months in advance, but had hoped we would be in a place where uh, my lady's progress in the home front was one that would allow me to go out and have her look after herself on her own for a couple of days. And we're just not there yet. So that's not a bad thing. It just, it's a, it's a timing thing. So had hoped that all the great progress that continues to be made would add up to being able to go and play IndyCar, actually get to a racetrack for the first time in forever not going to happen as desired. So going to have to cancel all that travel stuff here ASAP. Not sure what that means timing-wise. I'm thankful, very thankful to get this question almost daily from someone or multiple people. Hey, when are you going to get back to a track, et cetera, et cetera. Don't have an answer there. 
in terms of traveling, who knows? Could be summer, could be towards the end of the year. Just going to have to wait and see. Another quick little item of interest. Uh, thinking we could have another Indy 500 entry solidified here. And I won't say more. Um, been pretty darn aware of what might happen with this specific entry was asked to keep that quiet and there was a great reason to keep it quiet a little more evolution on that topic and anyways hoping to have the uh, identity of that driver nailed down finally with contracts and then something we can talk about publicly but getting to a point where there's not a lot of mysteries left as to who is driving what at the old Indianapolis 500. Last thing to mention here, I think we have our guest in place for this week. Just waiting to get double confirmation back. It was actually scheduled a couple weeks ago. You always want to check in after some time goes by to make sure nothing has changed. And if it doesn't, then we're going to have our man, Mr. Uh, James Johnson of California on the show uh, later in the week, probably Thursday, I think, is what we were thinking of trying to do. But anyways, we'll try and get that confirmed. And if uh, James is unavailable, I am hopeful we'll be able to get someone else that will be equally fun and interesting for your amusement. All right, a little bit of music bed. Let's get a little bit of a short interview with Alex Pillow says some sweet things in there too he's a great little kid um and then we'll get into your q a hold on is this an indycar winner on the other end of the line is this the guy that trusted in me and believed in me since day one <laughs> look yeah, i think that's you i got nothing to do with it man holy cow no brother no but what yeah i don't know i don't know i it was an amazing weekend man what yeah because everything went so smooth today. Like the car, I think me, it was one of those days what, that whatever you do, everything goes well. And and we got that day, and it was on the first race. So amazing. You know, the thing that I, of the many things that I love about this, Alex, there's no doubt that Pato was the fastest driver at Barber this weekend, right? He was yeah. a rocket. We know that yeah, his team rolled the dice on uh strategy call that didn't pan out understand that it's not like you got lucky and led the last three laps brother you led 62 percent of the race no way. yes yeah. 56 yeah, laps that's a lot. 56 wow. out of 90 laps you led next closest was pato who 25 more than double the lap so again we're not not criticizing pato just saying it's not like you got lucky. You went out there and commanded more than half the race. I mean, that's that says something. This wasn't luck, man. Uh, you and, and the ten car team went out there and and earned it. Yeah, to be honest, yeah. And it, it, I had the feeling this weekend when we started that that we had such a good car. Like you could see three cars on fast six. That man in IndyCar, that's not easy to do. Um, and yeah, today in the warm-up, I felt super good on the long run. And I was like, man, I, I can have a chance today. So, um, we kept it simple. We, we tried to, to avoid mistakes. We tried to 
yeah, just to have a clean race and a good first race to start the season. And and we went, we were a bit lucky and, and good with the strategy. So it, it was an amazing race. You probably had someone tell you this statistic in the post-race media stuff. You know that you became only the third driver to win on his debut for Chip and IndyCar? The first no way. First was Nobody Michael. Told me. Yeah. First was Michael Andretti in nineteen ninety four. The second was Dan Weldon for Chip in two thousand six. And you're the third. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's really good. But yeah, man, it's they they give me the tools. Like I I just try to do the job um like every lap, each lap, I was just thinking about the next corner all the time, the next session all the time, and and it worked. It worked today because I had I had good uh, good data from Scott, good stuff from Dario, from my teammates, from the team, and and that's why we did it. Just because everything was was there uh, in between my hands to to make it happen. You know, I'd love uh, love to get some thoughts, Alex, on. I mean, I'm happy for all you guys, obviously, as I am for everybody who wins. But there are two people that really stood out for me that I was happy for. The first one is Ricky Davis, right? Who yeah. Ricky is the Scott Dixon of crew chiefs in IndyCar, right? He is the most respected. Everyone up and down pit lane looks to Ricky like, you know, just you almost bow when you see him. He was so excited about your potential at that first test at Monterey in November, really uh, invigorated by you. And then, although he doesn't say a lot of words, Julian Robertson, uh, Dario was telling me how you have energized Julian uh, in a way he hasn't seen for a long time. Tell me about those two guys, because I'm guessing you got some pretty big hugs, at least from Ricky. Uh, Julian might have smiled five percent more on one side of his <laughs> mouth but tell me about those two guys uh, yeah man uh to be honest it's it's always um tough to to enter a new team you have to have a lot of confidence on the team you work the, the engineers the mechanics the chief the, everybody um but i felt so comfortable here since day one like with ricky at the beginning, Ricky was like um, just trying to teach me everything, and I was like, "Yeah, man, I, you need to teach me everything because I, I just want to learn from you guys." Um, I think Ricky, I don't know how many championships he won, but he won a lot more than me. So I need to learn <laughs> from all of them. Same for Julian and uh, Ricky. I remember that one of the first days he told me, "Alex, you cannot win all the races of the season unless you win the first one." And I was like, yeah, Ricky, I know, but maybe we, we can take it easy on the first one, right? Like we, And he said, no, we got to go for the win on the first one. On the second one, we had to go for the win all year. And I was like, okay, 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 I got it. I, I understood that. So I love we that. made it happen. Yeah, we made it happen. You can ask him. He, he told me. And he. I think every time I was at the workshop, he, he, he tells me that. And it's amazing. And then Julian, um, he... He's been awesome with me. Like he, he works so much. Um, he gets so deep into the car. He he wants to make sure I have the best car ever. And and he gave me that car today. So I'm I'm sure he was super happy. I think everybody from the team was was super happy today. I've been 
bombarded and blasted by a number of folks who watched you race in Super Formula, uh, who've said, how could you not know this guy was that good and he's going to, you know, win and et cetera, et cetera. Give me your thoughts, Alex, about every kid, every boy, every girl out there racing somewhere. Maybe it isn't, you know, uh, Formula 2, Indy Lights. Maybe it isn't in the, the big established spotlight where talent is developing. Tell me about your win today, thinking about all of the other uh, Alex Pelos throughout the world who are trying to get to where you are, but maybe a little bit out of the spotlight. This has to give them a lot of hope. Yeah, man, to be honest, I think I've been, I told you, like I've been super lucky in life where I always had somebody um, external to the family that that gave me the opportunity to go one step more, um, to go to single-seaters, to go to Japan, to go from Japan to the U.S., and then to go to the biggest team in IndyCar. So I've been through a lot of challenges and struggles like everybody else, but um, you just got to keep working and... And that's it. That's the only way you got to do everything you can. Um, I think I try always. It's not easy to, to do everything you can, but that's the only thing you can do. You cannot control um, all the other drivers, the sponsors or the teams. You can only focus on yourself and, and give always 100%. So I think it has pushed me a lot to have um, teammates like Scott Dixon and and Jimmy, seeing them working so, so much, I thought I was working a lot. And, and I was working a lot, but they were working a little bit more than me. And I was like, man, <laughs> these guys are champions and they are working more than me. How is that possible? I'm not a champion. I'm not even a winner. So, um, yeah, just got to keep working. And, and everything everything is possible, man. Everything is possible. If I'm here talking with you today, I come on. Two, I think two or three years ago, no, three years ago in Japan, I started listening to the podcast every single um, episode you, you took because so silly. that's what I wanted to. That's where I wanted to to go to IndyCar, and, and you have to do everything you can to to make that happen. And I I was super interested. I love your podcast. I love everybody, and I'm here with the opportunity. I'll try to make it happen again. Um, and that's it. I'm just really happy person. No. You don't want to piss off Ricky. He said it, you got to go get all of them. So, I mean, clearly yeah. you've been given instructions. Oh, yeah. That's going to be hard in IndyCar, man. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. I got to keep uh, Ricky and the boss happy. The boss was super happy today. Um, so, I know how to make him happy now. Um, we'll try to make it happen again. Last quick question for you, Alex. So, at that Laguna test in November, you and I got to spend some time, you know, it was already dark outside, end of the day, just BSing um, out behind the garages. And I mentioned to you what I had been hearing and was told by everybody that day, whether it was Ricky, Mike Hull, some of the mechanics, engineers, they all said the same thing about you. Love the kid, tons of energy, huge potential, can't exactly tell you what we expect from him though right we need to get into the season before we can say what to expect we know what to expect from dixon um yeah. you know and so on and so forth but they all said huge potential love them eh, don't ask us to make predictions because we don't know yet how does it feel to uh deliver a 
pretty damn good answer on what to expect after race yeah. one. Yeah, I remember that day. I think you were the first person that I really got, like, let's say, external comments, um, which is super good. Like, you don't know what they think about you. Um, and you came, you told me they were super happy with me, and that made me so, so happy. They didn't like your um, cologne. They said you had to change that. But, you know, the rest of the stuff yeah, was okay. Yeah, that's, that's okay. That's easy to change, right? It's no problem. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's amazing. And, and yeah, now we know what to expect. Uh, it's not going to be easy. There's like five tracks that I've never been, so I'm going to uh, struggle a bit more there. I'm going to study a bit more there. Um, but, yeah, man, uh, we're going to try and go all out this year, and, and we have the tools to make it happen, so I'll try and make that happen. <sighs> Hopefully you wake up smelling like champagne. Congratulations, brother. So happy for you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marshall. Thank you, everybody. And thanks to Alex for taking some time there after winning his very first IndyCar race. Funnily enough, what's the first major theme that y'all sent in for our discussion? Well, that would be a certain Alex Polo and what took place at Barber. For those of you listening for the first time, tend to visit on one or two main topics up front a little longer than the rest. Then we get rolling even more. And for those of you who've been accustomed to a certain audio style or signature on the show, do have to apologize here. I've had to cobble together a podcasting solution after the hard drive failed on my primary laptop, only laptop, a real laptop at least, about a half hour before first practice started on Saturday. I have a little cheap travel laptop that I use Uh, when my wife and I are at wherever we are uh, each day of the week, but that thing's not really meant to do much. And uh, yeah, it's uh, not really speaking nicely and connecting too well with my whole podcasting setup. So apologies if uh, whatever you've been accustomed to, for those who've listened, uh, is a little bit off. And uh, yeah, I sold both kidneys over the weekend, which was great. Uh, sold one eye and one arm and one leg and uh, do have a new laptop coming should be here a week and a half two weeks something like that so please bear with me daniel ingleton you will kick off this episode says hey marshall considering you only had one podium two other top tens all 2020 season how impressive of a turn up in performance was it this last weekend for alex pelot Says he never seemed phased at any stage, especially in the closing laps. A couple other questions about Alex here. A surprise in the fact that he put everything together in his first race for Ganassi. That's the big revelation here. As I've written, as I mentioned on the show more than once, especially right after I was down in Monterey for his first test with the team in November. They all thought, boy, this kid's got great potential. I mean, he showed that at times he was on the pace, seemed to really get what we do, how we do it, etc. in that rookie season with Dale Coyne. But absolutely nobody was willing to make a prediction, say, oh, yeah, he's going to be a top five, top six guy this year. Just lots of belief that there was something very good inside of him coming back uh, boy, there was a lot of belief being built at each subsequent test, Daniel. And so as I would talk to a Mike Hull, 
uh, Dario Franchitti, etc. They'd all say, wow, <laughs> this kid's really continuing to show us that uh, he's got the goods. As always, though, you got to get into that first race or two or three to get a feel. Like, all right, you know, pick your favorite sport where there's a kid coming out of college and you go, all right, big prospect, uh, big upside. You know, we just got to see how they play in the big game uh, with a major team. And this is really where the team was at, Daniel. Uh, huge belief that he could be excellent, but they needed to see proof of it from his actions on track during a proper IndyCar race weekend. And to your point, you mentioned the not seeming phase at any stage, especially in the closing laps. I would say from start to finish all weekend long, uh, boy, he's right there. They came off the trailer in a wonderful spot. Uh, didn't nail it perfectly in every session, but did not panic, didn't overcorrect in a way in one direction that would take them off of that uh, competitive place they were in. That's another good indicator, right? How does someone perform mentally when things aren't exactly perfect, when they're new to a situation, do they you know, start making big swings and calling for big changes, or do they stay faithful uh, to the process? And that's what he did. So I would say this is one we're going to remember for we knew you were good, we didn't know exactly how good, and heck, like Robert Wickens, at uh, what we now call Arrow McLaren SP, uh, Colton Herta uh, coming into the series. There are a couple who we said, Pato's another one. Hey, we know you're going to be good. We do think it might take a little while to see the best of you. And, you know, these are all people coming into high-quality teams and so for Alex, with a year of experience, it's great, obviously. Um, but he was not here in 2019 when IndyCar last raced at Barber. So it's not as if he had a ton of track knowledge prior, other than testing. But right, not like he's a, a true veteran of that place. So really seemed to get plugged in there during his first race weekend at Barber. And you just start to look at every other phase of what he did. Never seemed rattled. Huge smile on his face, whether it's practice, qualifying, you name it. And for a team that has been searching for seven years, is it? Eight years? For someone to properly compliment Scott Dixon, we've only got one race worth of a sample, right? We cannot absolutely start making proclamations that he won the first race. Therefore he's the next coming of Dario or Dan Weldon or anyone else. But we can say that, all right, <laughs> we have a reason to believe now that you could become something that extraordinary. Get to the interesting part here of, well, you won the first one. Now the targets on your back. Now, you're not going to surprise them a second time. Everyone's going to be looking for you, not necessarily to win this weekend in St. Pete, Daniel, but we're not going to discount you. 
Uh, if we see you coming and you're trying to pass us, whomever it is, uh, yeah, we're m- probably going to defend a little bit harder, not just because you're with Ganassi and in that 10 car that we've seen for a long time, but uh, we now know there's a reason to try and keep you behind us because you just told us you might be, as Damien the IndyCar Brit asks in the next question, that was a segue. I don't think I've ever done one of those before. Uh, is Palo a serious title contender this season? That's the next step here, right? And again, it's one race. We're not not over anything anything for Alex. But yeah, you win the first race. You make it look pretty convincing, too. Of course, we know there's some fuel strategy, pit strategy stuff in play, which we'll get to with some other questions in a moment. But the kid led 62% of the laps on Sunday. This wasn't some fluke thing where he uh, he got handed the race win or lucked or tricked or whatever else. Uh, if he was on a two-stopper, uh, if he was on a three-stopper, I have a pretty good feeling that he and Pato uh, were going to be mixing it up and would Pato have won? Would Alex have won again? We will never know because they weren't on the same strategy. Uh, but I can tell you that, look, the kid was so fast on Saturday, qualified third. Pato certainly pulling away a bit uh, to start the race. But if you think about that team being on a three race, I'm sorry, a three stop strategy, maybe explains why uh, there was such hard pushing early on to create a bit of that gap compared to those like Alex, like Dixon, like a few others who were thinking two stops all along. Cool, we're going to have to push longer. Uh, we're going to pit later, which means we're going to have to try and stretch some fuel so we're not just destroying the track on every lap compared to those making three stops. So got to give full credit to Air McLaren SP and Pata Award for what they were able to do the entire weekend. And for sure in the race, just also have to acknowledge that there were two ways to go about getting to victory lane and to do what Alex did involved some saving and holding back to be able to make that two stop plan work. So doesn't take away from Pato's outright insane speed at certain segments of the race, but it does explain why maybe Alex and a few others weren't quite as fast. So anyways, yeah, let's just look at this Damien from a, you won the first race. If you can just be smart in the next two or three, if he can get through St. Pete and one, if not both of the Texas races without incident, and somewhere in the top five or so, top six, he's heading heading into the Indy 500, heading into the Indy Grand Prix in a very smart place. What will be interesting to see at that point is the approach. Hey, if you've had a good start to the season, do you change anything? Do you let yourself start to think about points instead of just going and doing the absolute best you can and taking some risks to do better? Be interesting to see if those things happen. But the answer to your question, is he a serious title contender? I have to believe so. 
right? Uh, knowing how fast he was throughout off-season testing, knowing that, as Chip uh, Ganassi said during the broadcast or after he won, that you know there was one test where he was actually faster than Dixon. And that doesn't happen. <laughs> that really doesn't happen. Uh, it made them stand up and go, oh, wow, okay, uh, hmm, we do have something here. Kid goes out, shows them they made the right choice in hiring him. It's really hard to imagine, Damien, how the kid would lose his mojo. Uh, Julian Robertson would forget how to engineer the car. Barry Wanzer would forget how to do good race strategery. And Ricky Davis and the crew would forget how to do proper pit stops. So until we see Alex and Julian struggle it'll be hard to put an exclamation point on the yes, you got to lump Alex into the title contender pool. That's what I want to see. That's what we're going to find out, uh, how this relationship is in terms of strength early in the season. They're going to struggle somewhere here sometime soon. The odds just tell us that should happen. How does that play out? It's one thing to be fourth or fifth and dissatisfied at the end of free practice two or whatever it might whatever it might be. It's another when you're twelfth. You're sitting there midfield going, uh, we did not roll off the trailer in the right way. And we don't have a lot of sessions and time to get ourselves in a better, happier place. What happens then? That's gonna be a great kind of heat check for those two with the number ten Honda. So definitely Got to put him in the title conversation until he takes himself out. Do we think after the demonstration of immense ability to withstand pressure uh, and frustration, right? Connor Daly in front of him in the closing laps, definitely uh, slowing him down. Will Power knocking plenty of time off behind him. Pato charging. Dixon closing in. Did he look like... He felt one ounce of that pressure by how he drove, by lap time, by demeanor behind the wheel. I'd say not at all. So if that's who they have, it sounds, you know, it has the potential of being icy, right? Like that other guy on the team with the nickname I hate more than any other for any car driver, the Iceman, Scott Dixon. Hey, uh, boy, things got pretty darn hot for Alex uh, towards the end of the race and... Super, super cool. So that was fun to watch. All right, Daniel Summersgill. <clears throat> you say, does Alex Pelot's victory at Barber in his first race for Ganassi put Marcus Erickson under pressure to improve his performance? Says, hashtag me personally, two full seasons at Schmidt-Peterson and Ganassi, and one podium to show from a driver with significant F1 experience isn't good enough. Well, if we go strictly... On where he finished at Barber, you might be, I think you might be able to make that argument, but checking in with his race engineer, Brad Goldberg, a little earlier today, and everyone within the team is of the belief that Marcus, while he wasn't heading for a win and probably wasn't going to be getting ahead of Scott Dixon, was indeed on pace to finish fourth until extreme fuel saving he had uh stopped they had stopped him what lap two three whatever it is um earlier 
than some of the others on that final stop. However, things shook out there. He did have to stretch fuel to get to the end. As you might have seen in the broadcast, ended up running out, finished, what was it, eighth. Uh, Performance-wise, he was strong in qualifying, strong throughout Saturday, and running in a very solid position as well. Uh, until some, until a factor that really wasn't so much of his making came into play. So I don't think I'm seeing what you're seeing here, Daniel, of course. And I will try not to use this too many more times. Talk about the first race. So we'll, we'll see how things go at St. Pete. Uh, we'll see how things go at Texas. It feels like Marcus and uh, our man, Mr. Goldberg, have made a uh, another step up. And I hope for him that that happens. He, we were texting, I don't know when, uh, late last Saturday, maybe, whatever it was. Um, he just feels like he's found a home, like a real home at Ganassi. And if you think about his time in F1, coming into IndyCar, uh, Aaron McLaren SP and such, just don't know if that fit and feel and finish and everything that makes you feel comfy and allows you to get the best out of yourself. I don't know if he's had that uh, in F1 or before he got to Ganassi. And so year two at Ganassi, putting in a lot more work during the off season, getting a lot closer to everyone. This feels like, 2021 should be the best version of Marcus Erickson we have ever seen in top-tier motor racing. And again, if we look back at how he performed and was able to run for the majority of the race on Sunday, I'd say, Daniel, I saw evidence of that best Marcus we have seen yet. So, yeah, let's talk again after St. Pete or Texas or Indy GP and see where we're at. I really hope. Uh, the misfortune towards the end of Barber does not lead to uh, a slide. Uh, Andrew Drybelbis, how you doing, my man? Uh, Harisha Despond, you got a couple questions here. Peter Santi as well. On the topic of Pato Award and Aero McLaren SP, Andrew opens with, Sunday was not the first time Pato's strategist has potentially cost him a race. Is there a race strategy problem at Aero McLaren SP? Says we saw his pace last season. And this past weekend, but they've been out strategeried, uh, and he says, you're welcome. Maybe I should uh, trademark that, uh, during his time on the team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the truth was evident in the fact that his man, uh, team president, Taylor Kyle, who looks after race strategy for Pato and the number five Chevy, Along with Rob Edwards and Alexander Rossi's number 27 Honda from Andretti Autosport, both had the same notion uh, to stop early-ish and definitely commit themselves to a three-stopper. Haven't spoken with Taylor or Rob to understand what jumped out to them to make them lean in that direction. I doubt that I will. Again, we've got another race coming right up and uh, so yada, yada, yada. But they saw something knowing that there were 
certainly plenty of yellow laps to uh, start the race. And then again, soon after when Jimmy Johnson spun, there was something that said, Hey, yeah, we've just had some yellow, but one I'm guessing, uh, my mindset would be if I ended up going in that three stop strategy, I would have to imagine they looked at things and said, all right, well, we just had a big one. Uh, we're probably not going to have a second big, uh, crash slash yellow come. We had another one with Jimmy Johnson, uh, spinning and, and slowing things down. Trending wise, I don't know if we're going to get a whole lot more. So maybe that two stopper isn't going to be as easy. Let's just have our guys gas it up and go, you know, hit the throttle, take off, and let's try and do a three stopper here. That's my guess. That's if, again, having to put myself in the mindset of those choosing a three-stopper, that's probably where I would have went. All right, we historically have X amount of yellows. I think we might have just cleared most of them off. That's still not enough to make it an easy two-stopper. So uh, hit that throttle. Let's do three. Where, Where there's something interesting here, Andrew, to consider. Um. Taylor grew up with the influence of a certain Mike Hull. Uh, very, very present in his life. Uh, Taylor's mom, Melinda, married to Mike. Um, he's grown up in and around great strategy and great strategist and all of those things. So there's no lack of knowledge and capability. Uh, Taylor's ridiculously talented in many, many ways. So I would not put him in the bad strategist mode. And even if it's not the first time that you've mentioned that this has happened with Pato, you know, uh, while specific races aren't coming to mind, I can guarantee you that there were, have been plenty of times where, I mean, I just, I remember Scott Dixon going off about it over the radio during the race and a little bit afterwards of Mike putting him on the wrong strategy, just making the wrong call. Uh, Barry Wands are done the same thing with the 10 car in the past. Everybody, every great strategist has also absolutely pooped the bed multiple times. So I just, I hear what you're saying. We're always looking for trends. I wouldn't pin anything on Taylor that says, oh, that guy. Oh, I tell you the worstest, not by any stretch. Keep in mind, Alexander Rossi, pretty darn good at his job. The Andretti team, pretty darn good at their jobs. They went the same route. So, again, what this proved to be was wrong. And it more or less was the thing that cost them the race. There's a couple other things mid-event or mid-race with Pato getting into uh, a little thing with Bourdais, Bourdais coming down the inside, making contact. That rattled Pato. He lost a couple of spots. Uh, he got stuck behind, what was it, Dalton Kellett that cost him a bunch of time. There's some traffic things that factored into uh, things not working out for them as well. But I'll just say this. As a guy who's done race strategery and done it well, and also done it poorly. It's a little bit like stock market picks, my friend. 
uh, you you just want to be above 50% on the good side. I'm kidding. Obviously, you want to be at 100% perfection. We, everybody aspires towards that. But, yeah, you do your best. You hope that you're doing something that is not just going to win the race, but provide an advantage. And sometimes in the pursuit of advantage, you get handed your behind and other things. Last little thing here to mention, and it's just uh, one of the things that I enjoy uh, about this race strategy thing. It's when you see someone like the leader and the person in second place commit to something, and it's you're a little bit 50-50 as to whether you should do that while running in third, fourth, fifth. It's not too hard to then say no. Uh, oh, well, okay. Well, clearly stopping on lap 20, they're committing to a three-stop plan in this 90-lap race. Again, in theory, well, I shouldn't say in theory, in reality, you'd need to get to at least lap 30, 31 before you would consider pitting to turn it into a two-stopper. You pit again around lap 60, 61, get to the finish. By lap, uh, stopping on lap 20, and Hrishi, I know you got a question here about the same thing as well. Uh, by committing on lap 20, it was just an absolute declaration to everyone else, hey, we're going for three. And if you are a Mike Hull, if you are a Barry Wanzer, if you are anybody running in that cluster of cars, running uh, third, fourth, fifth, and in that little cluster... That was, what, five seconds or so behind. Uh, Pretty easy to go. Well, we're going to do something different because if all we do is follow them and we're already five seconds behind or more, it's going to be really hard to be any different (laughs) on the next stint or the next. So thanks, leader in car in second place. Thanks to those teams for telling us what you're doing. If all we do is just keep up with the proverbial Joneses, eh, probably not going to change our reality a little bit. So the other option here is to do a two-stopper, not a three. So guys, a little bit easier on fuel, a little bit easier on your tires. We got to stretch this out. You heard those radio communications. You heard Polo and third at the time saying, hey, uh, boy, I don't know about these tires. And the team saying, well, I I hear you. But you got to know about them. <laughs> you got to deal with them because this is going to be the key to get us into the game for the win. So I know for some might not like strategy being the differentiator between winners and losers, but you know whether it's when you stop for fuel and tires or the setup on the car, uh, you are absolutely making choices on how you want to execute the race and how your version of how it should be uh, performed is different than the others, well, that's all being done again for the same potential outcome to win. Uh, Look, this is the one that was the best on the day. With the yellows as they were, again, there was a little bit of variables for teams to figure out what they wanted to do, whether it was two or three stops. And with that extra 29 to 30 seconds spent on pit lane by the three stoppers, 
only award was able to nullify the majority of that time loss. So uh, what we should be appreciating here in particular is the outrageous speed that Pato demonstrated during the race, knowing he did that in qualifying, but in the race, all the passes that he pulled off, the delays that he experienced to turn a, call it 30-second deficit to the two stoppers into finishing just 3.9 seconds behind Pelot. Uh, Pato didn't win, but if we're talking the holy poop drive of the race, yeah, it was that guy for sure. Uh, Hrishi, you're asking, doing a little bit of that Monday morning quarterback thing, uh, deciding between two or three. You, uh, I think we covered most of that, but you threw in one thing here that I liked about uh, was it possible that O'Ward and Rossi were being harder on the tires um, and just made doing a two-stopper unrealistic. I know Pato's driving one that does not necessarily make it easy on rear tire life, which is the second question you threw in here. So uh, you said both uh, Sunday and at Road America last year, Pato had the fastest one lap pace, but seemed to struggle to manage tires over the stint. Is this a car problem, a driver problem, or both? He says, what uh, can both award and the team do to help him manage tires better over long stints? Had this conversation today with a uh, many, many championship winning IndyCar driver, uh, with another many, many time championship winning IndyCar driver, and uh, another dear friend who knows these things pretty darn well. And yeah, of the uh, of the takeaways from this race, uh, and there are many. And like I said, we're going to get to as many of your questions as possible. But good lord, there's a lot to talk about. One of them that became clearer than it has ever been is that Pato is absolutely his age. What do I mean by that? Why, what, what's, what does that mean? He, being a kid who, he's what, 24? 21, I'm sorry. At 21, he is absolutely a 21-year-old driver. He is so ridiculously talented. I mean, among the most talented in the field. And he is extremely 21 years old as well. And... I emphasize his age because if you look elsewhere in the paddock, you say, all right, well, who else is young and talented beyond all recognition and 21 and a very different personality? Uh, not, not outside the car personality. I don't, I'm not focusing on that, but the in-the-car personality, well, that's Colton Herta. So you've got two guys who are the the next generation and, you know, uh, at the pace they're going, they're about to be the current generation in terms of who's kicking butt. These two guys are 21 years old, and yet their driving personality and maturity could not be more different. Two of them have crazy fast hands. Uh, The cars are just dancing beneath them uh, at all times, it seems, on road and street courses. The this modern generation of drivers really, uh, and I just keep hearing it from the veterans over and over again, 
they've learned how to drive in a different way than they have. Uh, they've learned to drive off the rear tires. What does that mean? Well, obviously you got front and rear tires and you need all of them to help the car uh, stick to the ground, but you have a situation with a, well, heck, Rossi, uh, Herda, and Pato as well, where if you get the good fortune to watch in-car footage, you will see that their hands are just constantly moving through the, you know, corner entry, apex, exit. The thing is just dancing on the edge of, of destruction beneath them, and yet they hold on to it. It's crazy. Like, Scott Dixon has been the standard bearer of that for a really, really long time. And, you know, he's a little bit of a unicorn in that regard. And now uh, there's a, enough drivers chasing him or beating him on occasion with the same exact style. Where I mentioned the Colton and Pato difference, though, is this. Colton is just as Buddha, Yoda-like as his dad. There is some very cool and still water running through his veins when it comes to his driving personality. He also happens to have that outside the car, but again, that's not the part that I'm focused on. In the car, he is doing this amazing dance, and yet... He is preserving tires, maybe not to the point of perfection yet, but he is driving off the rear of the car. He is leaning heavily on it. There are a million little micro oversteers that he is managing uh, while they're happening, things that you can see from that in-car camera. And while the car is dancing, while the car is wanting to snap out uh, and do a big lurid slide or spin. He's managing that process the whole time through the corners and keeping it from happening and keeping those rear tires from doing the big leaving, you know, black streaks uh, on the road type Tokyo drifts. Rossi, similar thing, right? He's doing that same crazy uh, management of dance and keeping the car beneath him, but leaning very heavily on the rear tires to make his speed. Pato does the same exact thing, but a little bit too much. Let some of those slides last a little bit too long. So I don't know if this is an esoteric topic that I've gotten into where some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about or if this is something that is of interest to those who do know, but uh, I'll just close on this part. With Dixon, with Rossi, with Herta, with Pato, let's just say all four of them have the car handling identically, just putting a lot of weight on whatever that rear tire happens to be in the corners. If we're thinking about Barber, vast majority of the corners are right hand, uh, right-handers, that means that left rear tire is the one uh, just getting worked. In order to keep that tire from just falling apart after five laps, I'm exaggerating, but in order to keep that left rear tire from just being shredded uh, long before time for the next pit stop, you'll see the Dixons, the Herdas, the Rossies, just zillion little super fast inputs on the steering wheel 
to manage the uh, slides as they happen, before they happen, just everything to keep the car going forward, dancing on a knife edge through the corner like crazy, crazy speed, using that rear tire, whatever it might be, to do it, but without punishing that rear tire. Pato has a little bit of development to do. Team can certainly work with him on this because it's a small thing. It's not a huge thing. It's not a grossly negligent thing that he's doing, but it does have a bit of a influence on the quality of the car throughout uh, a longer stint. And he lets some of those slides just go a little bit longer than the others do. And so that means that rear tire, left rear in this example, uh, would be just having a little bit more rubber taken off of it, uh, potentially increasing in temperature a little bit more, things that don't necessarily add up to uh, the most effective stint from lap one to the final lap. And so if he, if you think of that tire, across these four drivers. If we're just thinking about their left rear tires at Barber during a stint at the at uh, uh, the race on Sunday, and you think of them, say, in wear, like in battery terms, Pato's just draining that battery a little bit more, just a little bit more. And I'm not saying it happens every stint, every race, just saying that when the car is performing in a way that uh, maybe, you know, allows him to go extra hard or isn't necessarily handling exactly how he wants. He knows how he can make crazy speed. It just, as I have observed, come with a little bit of a higher cost to uh, a rear tire or both rear tires. And then all of a sudden there's a point where he tends to uh, struggle a little bit before the others do with their tires. So just something to think about here. Um, Development-wise, we know that every young driver has things to clean up and improve. It has struck me that if he can clean this up just a little bit, Rishi, and not let those slides go a little bit longer than he should, lights out. This kid's going to be lights out. Uh, Peter Santi, you close this thread uh, on Pato Ward asking, in regards to Barber, Wondering if sometimes Pato's insane talent to extract maximum speed on every single lap is costing him race wins as it may be eliminating strategy strategy options, which would require a driver to save fuel or tires by consistently hitting a a prescribed lap time. Uh, So this is kind of getting into a little bit of what we uh, already ventured into. Uh, Was he pushing so hard, too hard in the beginning that he just had to pit on lap 20? Uh, open for debate but this is just something to keep in mind for pato uh at 21 i mean i guess i'd have to count the number of races that he's done but uh compared to a number of the young drivers in or around his age i don't know if he has nearly as many races not saying that he has 30 races to their 100 plus just saying that I still think that he has a lot of learning that is happening during race weekends where some of the others, Alex Pillow, for example, you mentioned, uh, you know, could Alex be more well-rounded? I wouldn't argue that. I'm sure that 
you know, Alex might have just have more mileage, more races, more experience under his belt to put him in a slightly more advantageous position. It's kind of why I was mentioning the uh, age and maturity difference behind the wheel between Colton and Pato. Uh, Pato is absolutely a 21 year old freaking jet fighter, right? And got all the swagger, all the everything you would expect from a 21 year old, you know, at the top of his professional game, uh, playing among the greats in uh, his chosen sport. And you look at someone like Colton, who's been racing since he was a fetus and, uh, just been through so many things that his demeanor behind the wheels a little bit different so it's not criticizing pato just i'd say colton is truly the exceptional figure in the conversation here most 21 year olds are not as cool and unfazed by everything like colton he's the unicorn here pato is the absolute normal kid uh just i think going to take him a little while longer to learn all the things that he needs to learn to become the best version of himself all that said moving on to the next topic could he win this weekend at st pete 100 huh. i'd be surprised if he's not on the podium if not spraying champagne for the first time uh let's go to doug cole it's a great recognition here doug he said hey after the race pato said uh, they chose the wrong strategy, but he says it seemed his strategy would have worked just fine had the tires not taken uh, an inordinately long time to warm up. And he said four to five laps. He says, do you know why they took so long? New compound, new track paving, ambient temps, etc. So I can't remember a race where the uh, Firestone primaries took longer uh, or took more than a lap to get up to temp, or lap or two, he says. Some of the feedback that I heard as well, uh, keep in mind that it's rare for Firestone, and I think most major racing tire suppliers in, in top-level series, to show up at the same tracks year after year with the same things. Uh, there's usually evolutions, developments, changes, and whatnot. So, Douglas, I would say for sure, uh, I know that there's something different that uh, they were using here at the first race than uh, they might have been familiar with. So, Heard some of the same thing. Yeah, it did take a little while longer for the tires to, quote, turn on. There were questions during the broadcast of, hey, is, are the starting tire pressures lower on Pato's car than some of the others right behind him? Because, boy, the thing was wiggling and walking all over the place uh, longer than you might expect and longer than it appeared the others were having to deal with. And, you know, that could be the case. I'm not claiming it is, but... Uh, if you are starting with your ambient pressures, ambient pressures, starting pressures, a little bit lower, it's going to take a little while longer for them to build up. So, uh, yeah, in general, it seems like a lot of teams did a very good job of figuring out the tires. Keep in mind that also a lot of teams went to Barber and did testing there once, if not twice. So seems like many teams had a proper grasp and understanding, and some others took a little while to figure things out. Daniel Angleton, say, Marshall, how surprised were you of Joseph Newgarden's mistake on lap one? Says, can't remember the last time he made such a high-profile and costly error. Says, maybe 2017, Watkins Glen crashing at the end of pit road. Yeah, the weird, right, Daniel? Oh, uh, boy. 
this is not something we expect to take place with our man, Mr. Newgarden, for sure. Of course it's a surprise. That's not his reputation. That's not his history of the guy who's, you know, Mr. Boneheaded Mistake. That's just not him. So it's why, (laughs) while it's crazy to ponder that a guy who everyone, I think, expected to be P1, P2, or P3 this year at the end of the season, right? He's going to be the champion or in the top three. I think we can pretty much say that every season going forward uh, for the two-time champion. Of course, there's massive surprise that Joseph Newgarden is opening the season 23rd in points. What? It's insane. Just insane. So... Yeah, uh, and then, again, uh, innocent bystander, Colton Herta, P22 is where he finished. Uh, Ryan Hunter Ray, the most innocent of bystanders, standers. and oh my gosh, my heart just hurts for RHR with another start to a season that's a kick in the crotch. Uh, P24, Again, of all the wild things, Felix Rosenquist is, again, innocent bystander. You have four drivers, two of whom I think, again, we could pretty much pencil in top three or four in the standings at the end of the year in Colton and Joseph. But you throw in Felix, you throw in Hunter Ray, who we know, again, we expect top six, top eight, who knows, somewhere in there. Felix Colton, Joseph, and Ryan, the bottom four to start the year. Uh, you know, there we, of course, could see most of them on the podium, if not winning this coming weekend, uh, getting a win and or top threes at the Texas double headers. They can overcome this crazy deficit right away. Sorry, not right away, but, you know, it shouldn't take forever assuming there aren't more cartoon anvils falling. But wow, yeah, just... (laughs) What? Uh, uh, Yeah, just nuts. So yeah, but I... I, The initial thought was, wow, that sucks for Joseph in the championship, but he should be okay in overcoming it, but it's he's going to have to uh, leave nothing on the table wow, this sucks for everyone else that was affected, and there are some pretty heavy hitters that were affected too. And then the final thing was, put it behind you, because this isn't Joseph. It's not who he is. Uh, We just, you know, for the most part, only have, uh, we have very limited, limited reasons to remember uh, big mistakes, big misfortunes with him. So uh, just, yeah, absolutely move on. Would expect nothing similar like that to happen for the rest of the year. Uh, let's see, where do we go next? Uh, Mike Caruso says, no, sorry, Mike, you're, uh, you're in the next block of questions here. Steve Grinstead says MP aside from the lap one crash. Did anything surprise you with the barber race says hope all is well on the home front. Thank you, Steve. You're always really, really kind when you send in, uh, your questions and notes. Um, okay. So I've almost finished my post-race brain dump column so i don't want to just rattle off everything that's in that so let me take a quick look at the results and see what jumped out um scott mclaughlin 
um, texted with him last night and just said, Hey dude, I know you want to finish, wanted to finish higher, but, uh, there are a lot of people with a lot more experience than you who, uh, showed their backsides yesterday and, or didn't live up to their potential. Don't, you know, be proud of yourself. Uh, you good starting base. So did I think Scott was going to finish, finish higher? Yeah. I mean, if he came home eighth, that's, I've had him somewhere between 8th and 10th. 14th is a little bit off of that, but uh, look, the guy got 90 laps of great experience, so uh, nothing really uh, too negative to offer there. Uh, Romain Grosjean, yeah, wow, so happy for him. Um, Just a really positive weekend uh, for him. I'd say Connor Daly, that was a bit of a surprise, and I don't know why these surprises happen so often with Connor of man, you had a great qualifying or a great first third or half of the race. And then you just start looking for tweets or whatever it might be to figure out what happened. Uh, finishing last driver on the lead lap and 16th after starting 10th, that stood out to me as a bit of a surprise. Uh, well, I just wish that wasn't a thing as often as it is a thing for Connor little bit surprised uh with ed jones i mean starting 13th not bad by any stretch when your brand new teammate who's really never done this before uh qualifies almost double as good qualifying seventh for romain uh 13th for ed that separation surprised me a little bit uh ed finished 15th and i just don't recall seeing much of him in the race uh, I apologize. I have not gone and read through everything to try and deduce exactly why things were midfield-ish for Ed, knowing that he showed some promise, uh, definitely in preseason testing, that made me think, wow, okay, I think he and and Groschon are going to be pretty darn close to one another. So that stood out to me a little bit, Steve. Um There's hope that the Ed Jones of 2017, super impressive rookie, uh, that that guy is who we are seeing in 2021, leading the Sealmaster number 18 Honda, Dale Coyne Racing with Vassar Sullivan. I want to see that for him so much. Uh, I, I truly, truly love Ed and want to see nothing but awesomeness for him. When he left IndyCar at the end of 2019, as I've written about and I think spoken about here a little bit, a little bit of a whimper, a little bit of a, okay, hey, we hate to see you go, but we didn't kind of know you were here a lot uh, this year. I just really hope this is a blip on the radar that disappears because there's faith that he's going to do very good things and bring some very positive uh, promotions and eyeballs to everything that's going on with that team and the sponsors on the 18 car. If Ed is not doing that so much uh, to start the season, uh, first couple of races, however many it is, yeah. So just out loud here, Steve, I really do hope that when we get to St. Pete in Texas that Ed turns up and 
turns out some great results, and we'll just forget about Barber altogether. Uh, last thing or two here that jumps out, um, the Carlin team really being nowhere all weekend. A little bit of a surprise there. Know that there's an engineering change in the off season. They're super, super high on uh, Max's new race engineer. He's been promoted from within the team, but uh, he qualified 20th, finished 20th, got caught up in uh, that crash, in the opening lap crash with Newgarden. Again, not Max's fault by any means. You could throw in the semi-valid, if you weren't that far back, uh, you know, you would have avoided it like some others, but... I don't ever really place too much faith in that, but just not a great weekend for them. And then some adversity that certainly conspired against a better result. That surprised me. Uh, maybe one other thing, one or two other things. Uh, Renus VK, who was caught up. Uh, some of the photos from the crash, you know, he's slewing sideways on the track uh, with all that going on, starting back in 14th. Uh, him racing up to six, that was pretty amazing. Bourdais and Graham Rahal absolutely, uh, I think, saved their teams some misery. <laughs> we love our French fry. We love Seb. Spent some fun time with him on the phone last night. Um, and, yeah, I'm so glad that they aren't leaving the first race with everybody really down on the mouth and pissed off. Where did all of our speed go? Um, getting a fifth. It's a great building block for them. Uh, And being as they were off for sure throughout Saturday, uh, recovering, showing that they could be that far off and then claw their way back to have a very strong race, that's something we need to pay attention to. You don't want to be in that position, obviously, where you're having to claw back. But the fact that they had to do that first race out and could, I know it's their second race together, but I'm just kind of thinking of this as the first real uh, you know, major exercise in this relationship. Uh, that tells me a lot. And Graham Rahal as well. I mean, Renus is great seeing him charge up to a six, but Graham, boy, the Rahal Letterman Lanigan team was, it was like they're at a different racetrack up until uh, that 90 lap contest started. And Graham, uh, like Seb, improving 11 positions, going from 18th to 7th, huge. A disappointed, depressed Graham Rahal finishing 15th uh, because the car was not capable of more at race one. Like, oh, man, that's not how you want to start the season with Graham because he, you know, he's one of a handful of drivers who is very affected by negativity. And so the positivity of them going from nowhere to pretty darn good on Sunday, I think that was huge. A uh, little bit polar opposite. I mean, it's great that his teammate Takuma Sato improved six spots, Steve. Still, that was going from 19th to 13th. We really didn't know he was there too much. Uh, same with Simon Pagano. So takeaways, yeah. There were some that I thought were going to do better but didn't, and I worry if they're going to be able to change that narrative here. There are some others who were terrible, who got came good. Uh, boy, this I'm um, feeling a bit like the character Stefan from Saturday Night Live. This had everything. Uh, where are we going next? Uh, we're going to go to Daniel Ingleton. Marshall, how surprised were you? And now we are moving on to where do we go? 
Ryan Terpstra, you're asking about the blue flag rule, mentioning uh, that being the, uh, hey, you're slower, let the car behind you that is faster go by. Mention a barber's extremely hard to overtake, and it showed late Sunday. Um, he says for him personally, the blue flag should no longer be advisory after 90% race distance. Don't ruin the finish to a good race with lap traffic. Uh, point being, Hey, when we get towards the latter stage of a race, if you are indeed not in the race for the win and you're in front of the, uh, the leaders, it's not a suggestion. It's a mandate. I love the idea there. Of course, you're going to get the argument from those who are being black flagged that look, uh, you know, we're able, you're not able to get past us. So why should we move over? I hear you. The same time, you know, usually you're talking about someone that is in 15th, 16th, 19th, whatever the number is. Uh, if you've got the people who are in one and two, and they're coming up on the person in one five or two zero or whatever. Uh, I know it doesn't stand very well with some who say, look, don't manipulate things. This is how it's played out. This is the real way the race uh, is coming to a finish. And Hey, it's your job, Alex Pillow or whomever else to, get by that slower driver or uh, minimize how much they're slowing you down. And, you know, I hear you. I don't necessarily disagree with you. At the same time, though, as someone who likes to write them word stories and certainly knows that them word stories tend to be a little bit more interesting when there's some drama thrown in, especially towards the finish, uh, the race fan in me totally agrees. The reporter journo writer monkey uh yeah that drama sometimes can make things kind of sort of funner or uh let's see my caruso similar thing says i know connor daly took some flack last year for clinging to the lead lap at road america possibly complicating the closing laps for pato and felix who are battling for the win behind him so somehow connor ended up in a similar position at the end of the race on sunday as power tried to close in on polo I don't think Connor committed a foul in either race, but it got me thinking, might some driver contracts include incentives for a lead lap finish or percentage of race distance completed? If so, driver would have extra motivation for clinging to the lead lap. There certainly could be. I have known of not a ton, but some driver contracts to include very unique incentives. I might just lean in this case and maybe in most cases, because we don't have, there's really, other than one or two uh, in the IndyCar series right now, almost everybody there is dang seriously talented and capable of winning at least one race. I'd say the vast majority here, Mike, we're just talking about folks with pride. Hey, all right, I'm having a bad day, man. Whatever it is, you know cut a tire down or whatever it was. So yeah, I'm running towards the back and this sucks. Yeah, I'm not just going to lay down for you though. I mean, I'm out here driving as best I can and I'm trying to get my sponsors on TV and I'm trying to do good things. I mean, I have been paid and, or I have paid in order to represent myself 
and sponsors, my dad, my whomever it might be, to the best of my ability. And mentally, there's no point in time in a race where I'm like, "Eh, okay, take a couple corners off. Let those people behind you just go by. Um, I mean, Jimmy Johnson, for example, did exactly that more than once on Sunday. Why? Different headspace. You know, he's out there needing to finish the race and do well and all those things, but he knows there's no reason for him to try and put up a fight to for the leaders at all, even most of the mid-pack drivers. So he didn't, and to his credit, it was great etiquette because he knew he does not have the speed to run with them. So why be a jerk and impede them? Well, quite often the person running in 15th or 16th, like a Connor Daly, could very easily be not too far off of the pace of those who are right behind him. And for the aforementioned reasons of whatever it was, a crash of this or that, just whatever, a slow pit stop, they're running in an uncompetitive position, but not necessarily at uncompetitive speeds. So it's when you have someone who's like, okay, my car isn't damaged. Um, I know we're not going to finish well, but I just, I'm not in the mood for giving up more track position or, or positions. So I'm not going to lay down. So I hear you, Mike. Uh, I'd say the pride thing, probably the number one incentive we're talking about here. Um, JJ Gertler, you say, do we know why Will Power may have been having trouble with his push to pass? I do not. Uh, if I was better at my job, JJ, I would have looked into it, but I haven't. Um, yeah, uh, been a busy day, my friend. Oh, by the way, still trying to recover from a complete computer failure. So yeah, uh, man, I got all the excuses, don't I? Yeah. Some of them are even vaguely not total trash. Uh, Daniel Summersgill. Uh, never heard of you before is a deja vu friend dirty autosport. Another bad start to the season with two drivers and Herta and Ryan Hunter Ray eliminated and the golden bowling ball on lap one hinge crashing and qualifying and then being your choice of Mr. Invisible in the race and Alexander Rossi never in contention, uh, only getting ninth says Michael can't be happy. Again, I would say, Deja vu to a bad start like last year, not so much as it lands for hashtag me personally, Daniel, because the the poor start for them that lingered for at least half the season, Colton Herta being the one outlier, was based on performance. Just right. They just weren't there. And they had to do a lot of things to get faster to then be more competitive. Colton getting taken out, you know, again, his mistake in qualifying uh, didn't have him up front where we normally expect him. Okay. But we know that the kid had the pace to absolutely be in the fast six. Hunter Ray didn't have a great weekend leading up to uh, when he got taken out. Nonetheless, I, I don't foresee speed really being the thing that's lacking or potential. Hinch. Yeah, a little bit of a weird weekend. Um, the going off and qualifying, not really getting a representative lap. Um, just didn't have a great weekend in general. Uh, and then having to you know, start from not a great place. One of those, as you mentioned, who we really didn't notice too much. So that's maybe the one thing I'm going to keep an eye on. 
But yeah, uh, Rossi, as we covered towards the beginning, if he'd been on a two-stopper, I have no doubt that he would have been on or near the podium, and there would have been not much of a reason to wonder if they had a, quote, bad start to the season in terms of pace. So I can't wait for them to get to St. Pete, hopefully have few, if zero, problems, and just have a normal weekend. I don't foresee Daniel last year lingering, uh, last year's poor start somehow coming back. So I think we're fine. Uh, Trip Hazard, similar question. Have uh, Andretti Autosport been outdeveloped over the winter? Um, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, Alexander Rossi qualified second, was running second. We know about the strategery that took him out. Colton, bad day uh, on lap one. Hunter Ray, bad day on lap one. Hinch, a little bit off. Let's get a couple more races. Let's get through St. Pete. I know we're only talking one road course, one street course, but let's get through St. Pete and then ponder. Ed Joris, you ask about Rossi's strategy uh, and why did he follow Pato into the pits? Yeah, it's it's not uncommon uh, for that to be seen and done. Sometimes you'll hear a driver's given that instruction. Hey, follow, right? If the person you're chasing pits, you follow them in. I'm not saying that's what happened, but that's what came to mind when Rossi pitted. Uh, let's see. Peter Santi. All right, my friend, let's see. You have sent in something that is 250 words, brother. Uh, thank you for sending this in. Uh, I'll see if I can get to it maybe in part two of the show. Uh, Jake Ziller. How you doing, Jake? Asking about Romain Grosjean's performance. Uh, says, hope that all is well with me and my wife and the cats. Hey, the cats get a shout out. That's awesome. Uh, we came home from physical therapy today, by the way. Opened the door, took five steps in, looked into the bedroom, and those two bums are sleeping face to face at the edge of the bed. And we just, we did our usual laughing of like, cool. Glad to see you guys are resting up for your nap, you lazy bums. So, anyways, thanks for the shout-out to Rocky and Rosie. says, how would you rank Groshan's performance at Barber? And do you think you'll be able to maintain that momentum headed forward? says, uh, I feel that having a good qualifying and clean race had to be a huge confidence builder. Uh, let's see. What's going to be interesting for me, Jake? And it's this kind of context of early races thing that uh, I keep bringing up, but it's for a reason. Romav being on a high-grip, recently paved road course with a high-downforce open-wheel car, even though you know he's not super familiar with the car or the track or the tires or many things, a lifelong road racer on a high-grip road course learning something new, I would say... It's a favorable thing. With Barber being the season opener instead of St. Pete, I think this gave Roma a chance to, as you mentioned, build a lot of confidence and come away from round one working through some of the uh, emotional trauma that was still remaining from that crazy crash he survived. Uh, Being able to work through that, work past that, say, all right, 
uh, let me climb back into a race car, go into a motor race and not be shaken or, or fearful, then perform incredibly well. Looked like there was a pit stop or two that might not have been the fastest thing I've ever seen or things that I've ever seen, but nonetheless, team, I would say overall did very, very well. Um, I think he did, in, I think it was a knockout job for all the things that could have been wrong, that could have had him looking out of sorts and otherwise. I would say he's got to be happy. I would be happy if I was a part of the team. And most of all, he's now going to head into St. Pete, going to be on a very low grip street circuit. He's been on those as well in Formula One. Just keep in mind that you know they don't have a ton of those every year, more than we do uh, sometimes, but going to a track that he's never been on, a place that has a couple sections where, man, it's easy to make a mistake and smack the wall. I know you could say that about Monaco, and you can say that about Azerbaijan and a few other spots in F1, but anyways, I like that he started the year at Barber, Things went well. He showed that he had the speed uh, for one of the smaller teams. He did not look like he was driving for a smaller team or performing uh, in a team that was less than the others. Not saying that that Dale Coyne car is as fast as a you know front-running Ganassi, front-running Andretti, or Aero McLaren SP or Penske machine, but I mean he was the best of the rest, right? Right behind him in qualifying. So. There's a lot of potential there. Super clean weekend for him. You kind of expect that from a veteran. Now he's heading to a place where it can be a little bit of a knock-around game, right? Some of the slower speed corners, you can certainly either get nudged, clip a little too much of a curb, and hit something a little bit. And This is going to be an interesting one for me. If he gets through St. Pete and... I don't know where he finishes, but provided he finishes in a decent spot and is not, you know, dragging a wheel back to pit lane uh, or parked in a runoff, you know, uh, stalled backwards or whatever. Um, if he can get through St. Pete in a clean manner, which I kind of sort of like his odds, I think we're going to erase any f- other questions that might follow. There, again, there should be no questions for a guy that has 9 million Formula 1 starts. I mean, the guy's 34, 35 years old, right? Super veteran. So the only real question here is adapting and demonstrating. And it looks like he's in a place where he can build off of something very positive at Barber and hopefully keeps his enthusiasm in check at St. Pete, gets through there with a really quality, real quality finish. And then, uh, you know, start attacking next time he is in the car at the uh, road course at Indy. So, really happy for him. Uh, Fleetwood Mark says, hey, MP, I'm primarily impressed to learn how your wife lands on the Van Halen versus Van Hagar question. He says he's being totally serious. Uh, But since this is a racing show, I'll add this. Uh, Very happy for Romain. Didn't think he could uh, get into this and, and do so well so quickly. Thought he could be a legit threat to win uh, a race or thinks he might be a legit threat to win a race by year's end. Might need a little famous coin luck to get in that position. What do you think? I'm with you. Thought that all along. 
would say that coming off of his pretty darn impressive streak, streak, what am I saying? I'm drunk. I'm not, but I feel like it. Uh, really strong weekend string of performances over the weekend in practice, in qualifying, and the race as well. I might move that timeline up a little bit from end of the year to, yeah, middle of the year. It really does come down to the coin team, where they're at in terms of vehicle development, how far the big teams uh, improve, the big strides they tend to make, what does the coin team have to stay in contention. Trend we've seen over the years, not every year, but uh, we've certainly seen it a number of times, is the coin team starts out strong, remains strong-ish. We get to middle of the year, then get into the latter stages of the year, and the money being spent by the bigger teams on R&D to find little things uh, to improve their performance through every phase of the season tends to cause a little bit of a separation. Again, it hasn't always happened, but you know, running out of fumes a little bit, uh, second half, last 60 or, you know, 40% of the year, 30% of the year. We've seen that happen before with coin. Uh, so the question here will be what kind of funding do they have and how hard can they stay on the R and D gap? Because we know this is where the big teams tend to flex their muscles. Some of the big teams falter, uh, to start the season. You know, it happens, but like we saw with Andretti last year, boy, did they rally hard. So we tend not to see that hard late season rally by coin. Maybe that can get fixed this year and Romain can be in the hunt the whole time. Uh, Tom Firth, any idea how satisfied Penske and McLaughlin were with how things went at Barber? So personally, you reckon he's uh, doing great given the huge transition. Uh, is it fair to compare McLaughlin to Jimmy Johnson's transitions or not really? Uh, yeah, I'd say absolutely so. I mean, the two of them lack open wheel development. I mean, Scotty did, I forget how many. I, it was, it's like a handful of Formula Ford races. Like the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. The first step above karting. Um, Scotty did, like, again, just a handful of Formula Ford races, like, 10 years ago. And then lots and lots and lots and lots of uh, V8 supercars. So you can't say he has zero open-wheel experience, but it's pretty darn close. Johnson, on the other hand, uh, be really testing that F1 car, I think was his biggest open-wheel experience. Um, you know, these are two guys who come from very different things. The separation though, is while Jimmy has done the Rolex 24 and a number of, uh, I don't know what the number would be five, 10 sports car races, you know, road races and done whatever number of road races have been on the NASCAR calendar. Uh, he's not a road racer. He's having to learn real true hardcore road racing to do what he's doing. Scotty, not the case. A exemplary road course racer. He's just having to figure out the vehicular difference. So yeah, big transition for both, but much more for the non road racer. I have to have to say, Tom, I think Scott's St. Pete, I'm sorry, Barber weekend I think we're going to see a number of those this year. 
where you go, oh, cool. Hey, that was a great performance in practice, qualifying, whatever it might be. And some races where things just aren't spectacular. And that's probably how it should be, right? So much to learn. Pretty much every track is new to him. Figuring out all the tire differences I've mentioned, right? It's not like they have the same tires that are on at Barber are going to be identical at every road course race. And same with the street course tires he'll be on here at St. Pete. It's just going to be a constant learning thing for him. And I do expect there to be a lot of booms and a lot of busts in this rookie year for him. And highs, lows, surprises, and hey, where were you? I didn't see a whole ton. I would think that would be his year. And then I think coming back next year, I think we're going to be expecting, if you are not permanently welded into the top 10 everywhere, every type of track, if not top six, top eight, that's when I'll be surprised. That's when I'll be disappointed. But I don't think that's going to be the case. Uh, Rich Bruns. Now, this might be my favorite question of the week, Rich. And uh, thank you for sending this in. Um, <laughs> I, I, There's always somebody that sends this stuff in. Uh, and if it's not me, it's just, you know, on social media. And so I love that you were the guy, Rich. He said, I know it's only one race at a new-to-him track, but how long will Chip Ganassi Racing put up with Jimmy Johnson being so much of an off-the-pace backmarker? Yes. Uh, when I read this, Rich, and this is just because I'm a smartass, when I read this, I'm like, man, his, did Rich, like, on day three of his I don't know, son or daughter's life. Like you're not even walking yet. What is wrong with you? Is this all we can expect from you? I'm not saying any of that happened, Rich. I'm just saying with my head on the topic of come on, man, (laughs) the guy truly is so far out of his depth of experience and comfort. I wrote 3000 plus words about it in an in-depth piece mostly with input from Dario Franchitti in it, but also from Jimmy. Really just hopefully drove home the point of, I mean, this is a guy who is a professional volleyball player uh, trying to become a NFL running back. This is a goalie in soccer uh, wanting to become a pitcher in Major League Baseball. Like, this isn't, you know, an outfielder wanting to become the first baseman in baseball. This is, uh, this is like outer space change uh, for this guy. And I just, I don't know if it's really going to be something that is adequately understood by everybody. So... I'm not giving the guy a pass as if my thoughts matter, but I'm not giving the guy a pass like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, look, if you just remember which way the track goes, boy, it's a victory. No, I'm not saying that at all. Jimmy was, as I was observing during the race, often two to three seconds off the pace of the leaders. Uh, In qualifying, he was not that far off of the leaders, but uh, of the fastest cars, but... Again, race pace, 
uh, physical fitness, mental focus, all the things, right? It's way off. It's the same thing he's been saying. I've been saying, I think a thousand plus people have been saying since he announced he was coming here. Look, it's going to be embarrassing for a while for a guy of that stature, seven-time champion in NASCAR. But you could not ask a guy to do something more different than what he's doing. If he was going from NASCAR to a full season of, say, SCCA Trans Am Racing, SCCA, I don't know why I called it that, uh, Pirella Motorsports Holdings, Trans Am, I'd expect him to do fairly well. Why? Road racing, a, a bigger, heavier tube frame, high power vehicle on slicks with not a ton of downforce. I mean, the guy, based on his road racing experience that he's had so far, even if it's not a ton, yeah, I think it'd translate amazingly to Trans Am. Throwing him in an Indy car? <laughs> That's less than half the weight of what he's been driving. Has insane amounts of downforce. Has all the things, again, that we know about. Right? Turbocharged engine. He's not really raced turbocharged engines before. And fuel saving in these cars and doing this. And I mean, just saying, Rich, I'll read your question back to you. I know it's only one race at a new track to him, but how long will CGR put up with Jimmy Johnson being so much of an off-the-pace backmarker? It's his first race, like you said, at a track that's new to him. And he's everything that was expected. Not competitive. But he learned so much that he should be happy with himself. Because he wasn't out there getting in the way. Or running so slow that truly they needed to yank him off the track. Uh, The guy's going to get better and better and better. So... We'll have to see where he ends up after two to three to four years. But I don't foresee Chip Ganassi racing at any point in time trying to divorce themselves from Jimmy Johnson because he makes the team better. Even if he is not guiding them on chassis setup right now or in the immediate future, his working style, his attitude, his team building capabilities, his sponsor development capabilities... Just his media profile and the attention. There are so many things he brings kind of on the surface and way down deep behind the scenes that makes the organization better. Uh, I would think they would hold on to him for life if they could. Um, So, yeah, I get it, man. You know, I'm poking a little bit of fun. I know, like, you're kind of poking a little bit of fun here, Jimmy, and it's all good. But they're not quote putting up with him they are delighted to have him and are pouring a ton of time and effort into him so that by next year he can be more representative of the true talent that he possesses but man this is not a guy just switching positions in the same sport this is like a guy coming out of nowhere totally different sport trying to figure this one out Uh, I hope more folks appreciate that fact. Let's go to, you know what, let's go to, let's go to the cup of coffee that I have to, to wet my little whistle. Now, here's something that I love. 
How often do we get one, two, three, four, five, six questions about Sebastian Bourdais? Uh, I'll rumble through them as quickly as I can. All right, where do we go first? What do we do? What's the word? Uh, all right. <laughs> I had a, like I mentioned before, I had a fun call with him last night. I can't really uh, get into everything that we discussed, but hey, there you go. Um, let's go with uh, Kyle Matthew Levine. That's a th- man with three prominent names. I love it. Coming from a guy with three names as well. Uh, so simple question with a likely non-simple answer. How did Sebastian Bourdais go from P16 to P5 with that much damage? So seriously, though, mega drive by him and great result for a team that hasn't had much to cheer about in a long time. Yeah, th- I mean, Seb was driving just like, his usual amazing self. Uh, they found the right setup for the car for the race and so that helped a lot i would say their pit strategy being on that two stopper certainly worked um not coming out and getting murdered in traffic certainly uh was of benefit as well Uh, it's just a bit of a classic bourdais race uh we we've seen it many times before where maybe things don't go wonderfully uh, through qualifying, but then, of course, we have to hopefully get things improved and figured out for the race, and he does that and does it well. So, yeah, uh, Seb, doing Seb things. How happy am I? How happy is he about this team showing to close the year? in their debut together and picking up and getting themselves turned around and having a really strong performance to uh, show that they have made. We can say that the stuff we thought they were going to be, they are, they have improved and also to uh, make a new sponsor happy too. So pretty cool. Uh, Kevin DeVries says MP your French fry was on fine form at Barber. We know his driving abilities can enhance whatever car he's in, but Sunday's performance seems to indicate uh, the Foyt team as a whole is up its game. Is this due to Sebastian's feedback and the restructuring with the team that's paying off? Does Barber really suit his style? I mean, I'd say yes to all three. Uh, Seb is merciless when it comes to providing chassis feedback. Been that way forever, and it's not always the happiest thing for a race engineer or team manager or team owner to hear when they're off. He's not saying critical things for the sake of being mean or demonstrating his lack of happiness. It's because he's a perfectionist. And even if the car is on pole by a second, if he knows that there was a handling deficiency that could have been worth another second and they should have been on pole by two, he's not going to be jumping up and down going, oh, it's amazing. He's going to say, guys, we left a second on the table. I mean, we got to figure this out kind of what you would want from someone, especially if you're in a team like Foyt's. It's been out in the wilderness for a little while. They've been improving each year in terms of personnel, but they've been out in the wilderness in terms of results for a little while. What happens when this team that's been poor in terms of uh, championship positioning for a little while now, what happens when that team has been making good hires and good hires and better hires and shuffling some of the pieces internally, especially on the engineering side, and you then complement that with 
I'd say arguably one of the best drivers to ever represent AJ Foyt racing, right? There's been a number of amazing drivers in that team. I'd put Seb darn near the top, uh, especially in the modern era. So I think this is a great timing thing, Kev. Uh, Larry Foyt really got to give him a lot of credit for making some of those infrastructure changes and additions. Uh, Mike Colliver, who's there, was a race engineer last year, and he and Seb know each other fairly well. He's now in more of a tech overarching technical director role. Uh, he's just awesome. So that has helped quite a bit. They brought in Mike Pawlowski last year as well. Super highly regarded. He's per, was performing, continues to perform at a super high level. And then Justin Taylor they brought in, who's now Seb's race engineer. Uh, and he is working at a pretty high level as well. So... You know, this is just good stuff happening. And then look, throwing Seb on a natural terrain road course. I mean, you know, this is, this is what the guy lives for. So we would think and or hope based on how they performed at St. Pete last year, they should be pretty good this coming weekend. Um, we know Seb is maybe not the biggest lover of ovals, but if they can find a happier place, they weren't necessarily happy leaving the recent test. They can find something happy there where they can get a couple of good results. Doesn't have to be great, but good. Head into the Indy Road Course. Seb's dang good at the 500 as well, right? I mean, uh, I'm liking their challenge, uh, challenges, Ch- chances, but we're going to go with challenges, which I just blended chances and challenges together. Challenges today on the Marshall Proof Podcast by a genuine certi- genuinely certified idiot. I refer to the show as my unpolished turd for those who don't know. And I leave in all the mistakes because, you know, it's me. It's who I am. Uh, our pal, Jerry Suddeth, you know, he says, without a doubt, Bourdais winning four championships is impressive and a testament to his talents. But could it be said that performances in the cars he's raced since his return in 2012 might be a bigger testament to his skills? Says he's won and finished strong in cars that I never expected to be a factor in this period, including Sunday underappreciated aspect of Seb's career, Jerry, and and bless you and your kind soul for recognizing it. Yeah, uh, boy, whether it was KV, whether it was coin, whether it was dragon speed, anyone remember that? Whether it was his first go at Dale Coin Racing, splitting the ovals with uh, what? Alex, I think, was it? Uh, Alex Lloyd? Anyways, yeah. Um... When was the last time Sebastian Bourdais was driving for one of the three biggest teams in any series? Uh, Hasn't happened this decade. Realize it's a very young decade. Did not happen at all last decade. So that's 10 years. Uh, And it was a little bit before that as well uh, in Champ Car before he went off to F1. So to your point, uh, I think it's been about the age equivalent of maybe a young teenager since Seb had a car that you could say, yep, open wheel car. Yep. This guy should be going to the front winning races without a doubt. And yet he has managed to win races 
for midfield, even sometimes midfield and maybe a little bit further back type teams, uh, and turned out some pretty impressive results for some others as well. So, yeah, great recognition. Uh, Ed Canerva, does AJ have a nickname for Seb yet? He says, seriously, what do you think has made the driver and team relationship take off so quickly where others have stumbled or struggled? Wanted to read this one. I know that covered a lot of it in Kyle's question, Kevin's question, and, and whatnot. But what I appreciate about this new relationship between the Foyt team and Sebastian is they're looking to Seb to be more than just a driver. And I'm not saying that Tony Kanon was just a driver and they didn't welcome his input or some of the other drivers that have been there. But as I understand things, they are more open than they have ever been to seeking advisement and input from a true championship-caliber talent like Seb say, all right, well, you've been at the best. You've worked with the best. You've done amazing things. You know, we're not telling you to call in every morning and say, all right, here are 10 things about how you suck. Uh, But, hey, uh, we'd like you to do more than just turn the steering wheel and step on the good old pedals. Be really plugged in here. Give us input. And if you see something that can be better, tell us. Not saying it's going to happen. But tell us, we'll do our best. You'd like to think that most teams are like that. Some are, for sure. What I appreciate here, Ed, is the team recognizing they were in a position where they need to be totally wide open to take that next step. Can't do things the same old way. We've gotten a hold of a guy who's phenomenal. We need to use all of what he can bring, not just the driving part. So I think we're starting to see the effects of that. And in theory, the effects will only improve and, and grow as time goes on. So, you know, they did very well on race day. There's going to be a lot more learning. They're going to have some bad weekends. It's going to be Grumpy Seb not answering my phone like he did on Saturday. Um, they're going to have some of those weekends, too. But I love where they're heading, and I would say if the Foyt team continues to be there or thereabouts this year, right? I mean, I, I hope they're going to win. Just I hope every team wins. But obviously, I'd love to see Seb win. Love to see them get a win. Love to see them floating around the top 10 in the standings, you know, top 8, 9, something like that feels very realistic. Uh, for the entire season, if the team can demonstrate, hey, we're you know we're not knocking off the big three yet, but look, we're going to be a real thorn in their sides more often than you've seen us. I think that could make a difference when it comes to off season. There's quality people in IndyCar, and those quality people know their quality. Most of them don't consider going to the teams that don't perform very well. You got to think about life, you know, legacy, all kinds of things. You know, no one's going to make a ton more at one team than the other. There's certainly different pay grades, but I'm just saying it's not like, oh, you go here and you're going to get double. So there's something to think about who you go to work for. Well, I tell you what, a guy like Bourdais or a team like Foyt 
if they can pick themselves up off of the proverbial floor where they've been for a couple of years and show that they're now in the top half of the field, finishing somewhere, again, hopefully top 10, I think that might have more folks seriously considering going to work for them who are exceptional at what they do. It's just a reality. So if all these things happen, you would have to believe that uh, the Foyt team will continue to improve. I'm going to close here with two questions that are awesome. Has the French fry or Pato given any reaction to their encounter? Pato got a little intro to wheel banging on Sunday. So I asked Sebastian about that. He said that he went over to Pato after the race and apologized. And he said Pato accepted it uh, and it seemed to be squashed. Um, The thing, the conversation or the exact thing that's been discussed with many people since yesterday about this exchange was, man, it, it, I think Pato has gone throughout most of his career without that kind of wheel banging happening to him, at least, uh, because he reacted really harshly and it seemed to knock him off his game. Like he seemed to be a little rattled by that. And as I saw it, right, Seb locked up under braking. I mean, it was a mistake. Obviously, he wasn't trying to lock up a brake, nor does any driver try to lock up a brake and you know, hit the guy they're trying to pass. But we've seen that 5,000 times at that corner at Barber, whether it's IndyCar, whether it's sports cars, uh, road to Indy, what, right? Turn five, late braking, passing attempt on the inside, uh, locking up a brake, side-to-side contact. We've seen it 5,000 times, right? This was, A, not a surprise that it happened, and B, it wasn't violent in terms of the ones we've seen where the person that gets hit goes flying off the track. Both continued. Obviously, you don't want to hit one another. I can understand. Of course, Pato wouldn't be happy with it, but it did feel like the reaction was maybe a lot more than what was actually transpiring, right? It, you know, it was a reaction like he had just got knocked out versus, you know, it was a jab. It wasn't a haymaker. But anyways, went over and apologized. Apparently things are squashed. I love the last question, though, and there's no context to it, but Manny Triple from Twitter says, why is Bordet allowed to just be a maniac out there with no consequences? Um, Well, he doesn't have a reputation among his rivals as being a maniac. So I don't know what you're referring to Manny. If you're talking about the incident aforementioned incident that Dan at Texan ombre sent in about the turn five contact. Uh, yeah, I know I mentioned it a little bit, but I've had this conversation with many drivers today. If that minor ish contact is being received like, oh my God, what did he do? Ah!" Like, we just need to watch more racing (laughs) because that was nothing. Uh, Again, I'm not saying Pato didn't have a reason to be grumpy, but I mean, that, you know, that's a pillow fight that happened. Uh, That wasn't a brawl uh, in terms of contact and and driving into one another. So yeah, that was a nothing burger, uh, at least as I saw it um 
Dan Gallagher um, asked him about observations uh, from last weekend. They got into enough of them to feel pretty confident that we're in good shape there. Get to a couple more questions here, then I'm going to uh, say farewell to this episode. Definitely going to be a part two. I have that uh, piece with Romain. I think what I'll do is just throw that in early in part two. Uh, if you've been to racer.com, you would have read uh, not all, but a good portion of the conversation. Uh, same with the Polo piece that you would have heard already, uh, but didn't put all that into the story. But anyways, I'll chuck that into part two here. Let me get to a couple more before we say farewell to this episode. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? We're going to go with Chuck Beck. How you doing, Chuck? And I don't know why. I just said your name in a high register. I says, hey, Marshall, sorry to hear about that hard drive. Man, that sucked, Chuck. Oh, boy. Luckily, I had have two cloud-based backup services that I've subscribed to for a long time. So that's great. Got all that stuff there. The only mistake that I, or the only, the big mistake that I made is I also have a external hard drive that's being backed up to. So in, if everything is going properly, three points of backup. And I did not pay attention and notice that that external hard drive had filled up about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. So the most recent quick and easy to pull off of a hard drive backup was from early April. So instead I've had to go to the cloud solution and that's not bad except downloading 250 gigabyte zip files and 86 gigabyte zip files and all that kinds of stuff. Yeah. So me not smart. Uh, he says, my questions are, will there be a sense of desperation for some of the drivers involved in the first lap wreck uh, going into St. Pete? Uh, I don't know if desperation is really the word that I would use for some. I think since we're back-to-back weekends and there's not a lot of time to sit and stew, I think the majority are going to be a turn the page, put it behind me, not going to dwell on it, let's go. If there had been two, three, however many weeks between, I think some desperation would have taken root in a number of the drivers. So I think we're safe in that regard, Chuck, just due to the bang, bang, bang nature of this uh, early season schedule. Um, You mentioned or you asked, what are the different driving styles between Rosenqvist compared to Pelot? I know the 10 car, the number 10 car was fast last year, but Alex has seemingly taken it to another level. What do you think it is? From what I have observed of Alex, he's a classic driver. He's not someone that I've seen who is super car dancing beneath him, wiggling, always fighting to get out from under him style, more of a classic producer of speed, but exceptional speed. So, Felix, yeah, that guy's a ball of badassery and energy, and yeah, that guy, you know. They all operate on the ragged edge, right? All the best drivers, in terms of making their lap speed, they're all on the absolute limit of adhesion. Different style, though, as you're pointing out here, is for some, 
it looks like they're under control the whole time. And others, you can see just these little constant acknowledgments that the car's just, holy cow, and that's how they drive it. It's more the attacking driving style of a Rosenquist, a Rossi Dixon Award, Montoya um, Power certainly stands out. Uh, think of Pelot more in a Joseph Newgarden type style, right? I mean, Joseph's not a guy where you see the thing wiggling around. I mean, he again, they're all delivering approximately the same lap time, right? Within a zillionth of a second, they're just doing it in a different manner. Joseph, again, classic style, just like Alex. Tidy, fast, smooth. Uh, the car never really looks like it is uh, trying to throw punches back at them. So Felix, definitely more on the aggressive, wow, uh, that guy is really wringing the thing's neck. Alex, not seen that from him so far from what I've been able to observe. What I love about the question here, Chuck, is I get to throw in a quote from Dario uh, that came in during the interview for the Jimmy Johnson piece, and that was he mentioned Alex quickly and said that Alex has completely reinvigorated his race engineer, Julian Robertson. And I know that Julian and the team were very fond of Felix. They they were not wanting him to go. But whatever it is, connection-wise, Dario was just saying that, hey, wow, Julian's eyes are lighting up in a way that I haven't seen in a while, uh, all because of this kid from Spain. So no doubt that Alex is a bad, bad, fast operator of a motor racing vehicle. But maybe the bigger takeaway that I'm looking at here right now, Chuck, is it appears his race engineer, again, technical director, been there for 25 years? I don't mean forever, right? Uh, Julian, who says nine words a day, right? He's just not, he's very mousy engineer type, old classic engineer type. When Dario says that Julian Robertson has been reinvigorated by his new driver, Let's not underestimate how much that play has played into Alex's speed and that win. So, yeah, there's something there. And I know I'm going to be keeping track of it as the year goes on. Bob Gravel, you're back. Says, what's your favorite thing about St. Pete on or off track? Uh, loved what you said last week. I never would have thought how photogenic Barber is as a non-photographer. But it's uh, fascinating to get a glimpse into that. He says, as always, prayers for your family. Thank you, man. Favorite thing about St. Pete, on or off track? I do love shooting at St. Pete. I love street courses. Love, 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 love. I know a lot of photographers, we're late in the show, so I'll use a vaguely adult word, piss and moan about, oh, you can't get anywhere, and there's stuff always in the way, and there's fences, and there's that. And yeah, you know. It's different than a Road America or a Barber or whatever. You can just walk right up and get what you want. It's unobstructed, and it's beautiful, and it's green and trees and all kinds of stuff. I love street circuits for often the reasons that they are moaning. Hey, cool. Uh, the, the proverbial urban jungle. Got to figure it out. Got to find good stuff when not every photo 
position is free and clear and unobstructed. What interesting things can you do? Can you include some of the obstructions? Can you work them into the photography? Can you take some photos behind that chain link fence, but include the chain link fence? You know, a little bit of a blur, a little bit of something, but just, hey, you're showing that these are, you know, caged animals operating on the streets of wherever. So love that about St. Pete. Uh, I haven't done, even though I've been there a lot, I haven't really done much in terms of exploration in and around to say, oh boy, this place off track is where I love to go a ton. Um, but I'll tell you the last few years that I was there, 2019 being the last, uh, I think 2018, I did this. I forget where else, what other year, but my last couple years, and I've tried to do this more and more is, uh, Hey, I want to do a million things as a reporter for you all words, photos, video. I want to do everything at all times. I could easily work the entire time, never go to bed. Once I get to a, a racetrack because my mind is pretty creative, tried to rein that in a little bit in recent years to say, all right, well, that's great. But you know, being the guy who, when he dies, all people can say is, well, he sure worked a lot. I mean, that, that, that would be sad. So just tried to bring things back a little bit, Bob, dial it back a little bit and say, all right, well, let me get out here at a more reasonable hour tonight. And okay. Before either I left or who knows, maybe the night before spent some time pulling up Google maps or whatever it was to just look around the, uh, outlying area talking about St. Pete in this specific example, but applies to many other places and look for things. Cool. There's a, I think I could drive there pretty easily, although I can't by memory mention the street names or whatever, but I found this excellent Cuban restaurant. uh, I don't know, maybe two miles from the track, three miles from the track. And so it's, maybe it's funny. I don't know, but I'm often one of the last people to leave the media center each night. But the thing that I started doing and will hopefully continue doing once I get back on the road is look at where I might want to go and try. Uh, And keep in mind, there's Cuban restaurants out here, you know, living in the Bay Area, big multicultural everything. So it's not like I'm lacking options to try these things out here, but always looking for something that is local and cool and interesting uh, to have for dinner uh, or, you know, I have to say it's probably not a lot more than that not a big drinker. So it's not like, ah, where are we going to go get tanked up tonight and whatever. And drivers tend not to do that anymore. They used to back in the day. That was fun, but you know, you're not going to find uh, uh drivers, crew members out partying Friday night, Saturday night or whatever else. So usually it's a, let's find something interesting for dinner. And so since I tend to be one of the last to leave the media center, what I'll honestly do is try and time things based on when the restaurants open. So there are some places where you go like, hey, uh, they're closing at 9 o'clock tonight or 8 o'clock. And, well, I better get my monkey ass out the door if I want to go there and enjoy that for dinner. And uh, so, yeah, I'd say that's one of the mainstays of trying to get out and around St. Pete. There's some cool things downtown, little restaurants that I've seen or, you know, or been to, uh, gone to with some friends. But, you know, the showing up a day early so I can go to a baseball game or go out to the beach or whatever overstating the obvious here but uh extra time 
uh, try and keep things pretty tight uh, so I can get back home as quickly as possible. And this is even before um, we were experiencing some hardships on the home front. Uh, last thing here for this episode, J.R. Riggs. How you doing, J.R.? Uh, you throw in something that I really appreciate, and I thank our man, Jim Kaiser, for posting this as the last question for the episode. With the mention of how many drivers have driven for Dale Coyne, that got me to thinking about Carl Hogan. I believe that is where Elio Castroneves got his start. What happened to Carl Hogan, and how did his team compare to Coyne? Uh, who else got their start with Hogan? Well, I got my cart start with Carl Hogan, JR. Uh, I only worked for one team in cart, and it happened to be Hogan Racing. So that was really cool, and it was while Elio was there. Um, Elio did not get his start with Carl, though. He actually got a start with Tony Bettenhausen's team. So did his rookie year with Bettenhausen, then moved over to Hogan, uh, and then moved over to Penske. Uh, if we're thinking about who got their real, real, real starts in IndyCar, well, there's some guy named Fario Dankiti who uh, indeed migrated to good old America in 1997 thanks to mercedes carl's team being powered by mercedes uh mercedes young driver well uh dario got a start with carl so that i would say really really cool trying to think did yan magnuson get his start with hogan uh or with penske penske placing him there not i'm struggling to remember knowing that there was a Penske-Hogan alliance, Emerson Fittipaldi driving for them. Again, I could be totally wrong on the timing, but part of me kind of sort of remembers Emo getting hurt and Yan being drafted in to drive uh, in that Hogan entry that was sponsored by Penske. Was it leasing, trucking? I don't Again, I apologize. Uh, But trying to think who else. Uh, Luis Garcia, who was decent in Indy Lights, but terrible in IndyCar. I think he got his IndyCar start with Carl. Um, Carl was around for a long time, though, back in the day. Uh, Al Holbert drove for Carl, not an IndyCar, in Can-Am. Uh, trying to th- Anyways, Carl, what I loved about Carl... Big guy, big barrel-chested, Midwestern trucking uh, impresario. Um, Bigger-than-life guy, big guy, too. And, yeah, he had his links and connections. Obviously, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of what we call Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing today, but it started out as uh, Ray Hall Hogan Racing. Uh, This was Carl and Bobby coming together buying the uh, assets of True Sports and launching all that in the early 90s. I'm trying to think, was Carl still involved there when Mike Groth came in? Um, Again, I'm sure some of you have more encyclopedic memory than I do. Um, A guy who, while having an alliance with Penske at one point in time, I've always thought of, and I would say his, his character was more of the um, I don't know, coin, you know, Dale often did things on a really 
you know, what's the cheapest, shittiest way I could do it. Sorry, I cursed again. Just to make the field and collect some start money. I mean, it was it took Dale a long time to decide, hey, let me actually try hard in terms of having good drivers and good everything and see what we can do. I mean, Hogan wasn't afraid to spend money to try and be as best as they could. More of the challenger team, though, more of the taken on the establishment type approach guy than a, you know, hey, I just want to be a fat cat spending a ton of money and, you know, uh, I'd rather be the ones, you know, a little more humble means, a little more blue collar and uh, taking on the establishment than trying to be the establishment type. Uh, I think of that blue collar side is something that he and Chip Ganassi definitely share. I'd say Chip, though, a little more hardcore when it came to excellence, Uh, a lot more hardcore. So, you know, racing is Chip's life and Chip's business. For Carl, it was his passion, not his business. So, you know, you could say the same thing about Dale, but again, Dale, the first 15 years, 20 years plus, uh, there's a lot of shortcuts being taken, a lot of paid drivers, a lot of making up the numbers and just enjoying being there. Um, Carl, I don't really recall any point in time where you go, yeah, he's he's intentionally mailing some of this in. And uh, yeah, he was never happy to just be there. So uh, I don't pretend to have known him well past years ago, but uh, yeah, Really good guy. My friend, Matt Swan, who's now with uh, Meyer Shank Racing, was with Ganassi for 19.9 years. Uh, he got his start at Carl Hogan um, as well. And so he met his wife, Liz, there. She's in charge of PR, and they have uh, some great kids who uh, look better than their father and uh, are certainly smarter and more talented. So anyways, a lot of good people. Uh, got to work for Carl Hogan. Some of them got their start. Some went on to really big things. Elio, as you mentioned, didn't get his start, but uh, he became a contender and threat at Hogan. And I know that for sure caught Roger Penske's eye when, sadly, they needed to find a replacement for Greg Moore going into the 2000 cart season. Guess what? We're done for this episode, at least. We tried something a little bit different, threw in a short interview with Alex Pelot. I hope you like that. Um, probably not going to do that too often, but who knows? We'll see. Got a part two coming here. Going to chuck in that Romain Groschamp short interview as well. Uh, Jim Kaiser, thank you, my friend. Excellent job on assembling the questions. And thanks to all of you for sending them in. Lots more to get to in a part two. I don't know when I'm going to get to it, but I'm going to try to get to it as soon as I can because, hey, we got a race this weekend. I can't fart around. Cooper Tires, huge, massive thank you to you. Justice Brothers, equally as massive of a thank you. Then finally to our pals at torontomotorsports.com. And maybe if I remember correctly, and Jim, maybe you can prompt me in the part two Q&A. Let's talk about Road to Indy because, man... There was some amazing stuff happening at Barber uh, below IndyCar with the kids that hope to be the next Pato's and Dixon's and whomever's. 
man, there are some great stuff happening, huge upsets, all kinds of wonderful things. So thanks for listening in. We'll speak to you here shortly. 